Awesome. Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ari McGee, joined by Pippa Warner. Hello. Jim Heskett. Glad to be here. And Nick Thacker. Hello. And guys, I, I got to be honest with you. I have to do something that I've never done on the show before, and I rarely do in real life. Do you have right? to poop? No. I do that on the show every week. What are you talking okay. about? Okay. I have to apologize to someone, okay? Oh, no. Last Did week, Chandler listen to the, our episode? No. I never apologize when I tell the truth. <laughs> That's one of my sticking points. You know what I mean? Even if it <laughs> causes all kinds of chaos, or the truth as I see it, at least. Uh, no. Last week, we had Dave... Cost. Exactly. Last week, we had Dave Barron's on the show, okay? And I asked him what his favorite movie was, okay? And he... I still think it's preposterous to say Moon Knight. Like, it just came out. But I will back it off a little bit and say I don't blame him for saying it because I watched it, and it's pretty darn good. Have you guys watched Moon Knight at all? It's a show, though, right? It's not a movie. No, it's a show. Yeah, it's a series. Okay. I haven't seen it. Pretty darn good. I can see why he was excited about it. It's still, Dave, it's still preposterous to say that it's your favorite, like, movie (laughs) thing ever. But I'll back off a little and say I half apologize because I can see where you're coming from, because it's really good. If you guys get a chance to watch it, I, I would really recommend it. All right. Okay. The CGI alone for Khonshu, who is like the Egyptian bird god, it's like an Egyptian mummy with the head of a skeletonized falcon. It's fantastic in, in and of itself. Character contact. Very cool. Very cool. Dave, if you're listening to this, I half apologize to you, and I hope that you'll take my sincere apologies. All right, you guys got anything you want to add before we kickstart this show? I don't think so. Are we kickstarting? <laughs> oh, I wonder if we can get some Brandon Sanderson love. <laughs> That's for sure. But uh, maybe we'll figure that out sometime. Maybe we need a Patreon or something. I'm sorry, Patreon. I want to say Patreon so I sound posh. Patreon. Ma- yeah, maybe, maybe we'll have a Patreon sometime. But in any event. If we have nothing else to talk about, let's get into the news. Really? No, that was good. That was good. Timing was impeccable, and the stupid thing was queued up in the middle of the track. I, I think it was pretty good, man. I, I give you like an A. God, I can't give like somebody does this on purpose. I think if you looked in a mirror, sir, you would know who's sabotaging <laughs> you. And dissociative identity disorder is a main theme of Moon Knight. So maybe the other you is sabotaging the daytime you. Just a thought. Okay. Our first story comes to us from Superhuman. It's written by someone named Rahul Vora. And that says, Tiago Forte on how email can help you achieve your productive potential. I got to be honest with you guys, my email is not productive for me beyond simple sending things and receiving things. So he has a lot of tips in here about how to have a better relationship with your inbox. Have you guys had a chance to take a look at this? Any of these strike you as something that is worth your time to try? I liked it. Yeah. 
I liked the the part where he says, if you don't have a place for information to flow, it's like there was a, a whole quote. It wasn't like just it becomes a bottleneck, but oh, anytime you don't have a place for information to flow, it will pile up, multiply and become a problem. Mm. You're using your email for too many things. If you want to use this to read your newsletters, then forward all of those emails directly into your reading app. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty smart. That's pretty smart. Mr. Jim, what about you, man? I, you seem like the kind of person, and don't let me speak poorly about you, out of turn about you. You seem like the kind of person who has an impeccable inbox. You have things where they belong. I have in my email inbox, in all of my email inboxes, I have one email right now. I've been at Inbox Zero for a couple of years, and really, I... I came upon this discovery when I got hired to be somebody's personal assistant. And I looked at that person's email inbox and I was like, this is an untenable mess that's going to kill you. And so I had to figure out a way to like, to Marie Kondo that shit down. And I've done it in my own life. I figured out that, that this article is right on. I agree with all of these points, even though all he's basically saying is you put everything in your email inbox and you need to take that stuff out and put it in different places. And so you could argue it's the same thing. It's just in different places now. But the problem is if your inbox is too cluttered that you can't get to your work, then that's the real problem. I think the problem is people use email is designed for communication, communication out, communication in. That's what it's for. But we use it to receive information way too much. And like Pippa was talking about with the reader and like he talks about in this article about using Instapaper. Anytime I want to receive information, if it's just a one-way flow of information, like I want to know what's going on with my Denver Nuggets or I want to know what's going on you know, with whatever else I'm interested in. I'm not going to go sign up for that email newsletter because I don't want to use email as just a repository where information comes into me. I consume it and then it's gone forever. I put that kind of stuff into Feedly and RSS reader. So I only use email for, for communication and then I use RSS for information receiving because, you know, if you go through your email inbox, you're going to find, you know, you're still subscribed to do you need four alerts from CNN or Fox News every day? Do you need to get on the, do you still need to get alerts about shoe sales from that place where you bought a shoe, you bought shoes five years ago? You know, like you don't need that stuff. If you want to buy, you're going to buy shoes, but once a year, do you need to know every week what sales are going on at the shoe store? You really don't. And so all that stuff. And I think that we also have a habit of just when emails come in that we don't want, we just go right to delete. But I'm urging you listener Next time, go down to unsubscribe instead. It will make your life better. Mm. I want a segment called Time Management with Jim. Mm. <laughs> I feel personally attacked right now because everything <laughs> you said is true about me. My e inbox is a disaster, bro. We may have to, I may have to pick your brain some more. Dude. Nick, what about you, man? How is your email game right now? Right now, it's awful. I've been doing a lot of non-computer stuff. We built a bar in our basement and everything. So everything in my inbox is stacked up. But I am a huge proponent of the inbox zero methodology. I agree with everything Jim says. I, for a long time, so I hate Gmail, for example. So I can't use Superhuman because they're only Gmail or G Suite. But I've seen Superhuman before. This is, it's an app, by the way, Superhuman. It's an email app. So Tiago Forte is this guy that guy behind it. He's brilliant. I, I love what they're doing. It's super sexy. It's a slick app, all that. I just personally couldn't use it because I don't use Gmail. But the point is, I agree because this email, is, it's a mindset thing. And people like, not to point any fingers, my wife, treat it as just like everything that, everything. It just goes in, it just sits in the inbox. And I'm like, you don't even have to go through this article and, and do the, you know, 
read later app stuff. You could literally just set up different folders in your email and drag all those emails into different folders and keep the inbox at zero. And you would be immediately refreshed and feel more productive. And yeah, arguably it's like Jim said, you didn't really get anything done, but you did. You actually, you cleared out that, that clutter. At least it's now in, in approachable buckets. You know, That's so actually a, a huge thing is the mental load of just seeing yeah. things. I recently decided to try like a capsule wardrobe, which is a whole thing, but there's 10 items of clothing in my closet now. And I did not expect to walk into my closet in the morning and all of a sudden have this rush of energy because I wasn't seeing all of that stuff. There's no I'm, choices to make. There's no. I'm impressed you have 10 items of clothing. <laughs> like I've got a wool shirt and a pair of jeans. A couple socks. So it's a good thing we never land on laundry day. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just going to belabor the point. I think Jim's right on. It's a mindset shift. Email in and of itself, I don't think is a productivity weapon, meaning I don't think like it's just you're not doing anything, but you are doing something by changing your mindset. And you can be far more productive if you don't have a bunch of shit and you're clogging up your inbox. Hmm. Okay. Well, then apparently I am the everyman and I have 8,000 emails in one of my oh, I am boxes too. that I'm looking at. Oh, it's you use well? Okay, good. Because everyone else I'm is like, I'm going oh, through I'm, and like starting I'm to. email zero. I didn't even know what that was until I looked at this article. So I will I'm say that curve. Grammarly will, will think that's insensitive and you should say every person. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Sorry. Sorry, Just Grammarly. know that. It's and okay. that's an apology that I grammarly. That's an apology that I. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's go to our next story. Creative ways to brainstorm as authors. So I feel like we I don't know about you guys. I get asked a lot where I come up with ideas, okay? And it, it's a, it's almost an impossible to answer question. You know, it's like, where did you come up with what you ate for dinner last night? Like, maybe you had leftovers. Maybe you ordered in. Maybe your spouse was excited about something. Maybe Jim told me he was eating tikka masala, and I copied him. Who knows? And those are all, that's the same way I come up with ideas. Who knows? But if we're going to brainstorm about ideas, and and we're going to be the type of person who needs to do this in a more strictured manner, structured, structured manner, what kind of ideas do you guys use? Because this comes to us from Writers in the Storm, which is punny, I guess. I like that. By Becca Pugliese. Pugliese, maybe? And she says, you know, you could start with genre. You could start with character. You could start with a story seed. What about what do you guys do to brainstorm ideas when it's time to, to brainstorm? Maybe not necessarily how you outline all the ideas that you come up with, but how are you generating ideas for your stories? I'll skip Pippa because she gave me the people's eyebrow a second ago. And that means don't call on me, RA. And I know that about her. I know that about her. <laughs> so I'm going to reverse course. I'm going to go to, to Nick the Hacker first. Am I doing it? Am I doing the eyebrow? No? Okay. Damn it. I guess I feel like it. my kids used to be like, am I winking? And like they would just be blinking both their eyes. Yes. I'll shave my eyebrows off next week. You guys won't have no idea what I'm thinking. So yeah, I've done a few of these with the exception of character for some reason i don't really consider character when i'm conceptualizing a novel that typically is like a second or third big step for me i start with a story seed that's one of these in in here a lot of what if this is where the what if question falls 
this kind of stuff that I write, uh, what if is a great way to get into that genre, you know, thriller, action, adventure, you know, what if uh, Yellowstone erupted and that, that led to the Enigma strain, but that's pretty much my main method. Genre is a big part. The start with genre one as well. What do you like to write? What do you like to read? Sometimes I'll be like, I'm going to write a book about Atlantis. You know, cool. There's a whole fantasy side to go with, but I write thrillers. So there's some boundaries around that, um, genre there's some expectations that i gotta hit so that forces me into a more historical maybe scientific you know what do we have from atlantis today that kind of stuff those are the two big ones for me genre and story seed mr heskett for the record when i get indian i get either lamb korma or butter chicken i'm not a tikka masala guy okay damn oh, it I tikka like masala that. yesterday i was gonna say something but then we moved on so thanks for bringing that back i wanted people to know that <laughs> I just I wanted to make sure the record was clear because this is for forever. And we got our show, show title. Jim doesn't like tiki masala. <laughs> Where do I get my ideas? I usually start with I'm a thriller author, so I don't focus as much on character. I usually st- we will start with plot and the tropes, and then try to find a character who fits that. You know, like I my current series, it's an adventure series, and I knew I was going to have a protagonist who was going to be hunting around for clues. And so I needed to be someone curious. So someone curious, okay, it could be maybe a fed, maybe a PI. What about a journalist? What about a wannabe journalist? So I usually like work backwards from the end of my story to come up with the character who will fit properly into that scenario. The story that I always tell when people ask me where I get my ideas, and I don't think I've told the story on the show before. I'll keep it quick. So I used to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I worked at this restaurant, and there was a woman who worked at that restaurant named Tracy. File that information away for a second. Years later, I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and my first month in Boulder, I went to this this brew pub to get lunch there, and I was waiting in line for the bathroom, and they had pictures all over the walls outside the bathroom. They were like class pictures of the people who worked there. It was like spring 2004. And it was a picture of everyone who worked at that restaurant at that time. And I was just looking at these pictures because I was waiting for the bathroom to open up. And I saw Tracy in one of those pictures. Like I saw my friend who hadn't seen in years. Last time I saw her was 800 miles away. She was just in this picture on the wall of this restaurant. And I was like, holy crap, that's weird. And I was like, this is the kind of situation that should spawn a story. <laughs> so I thought, what if I put my thriller hero in that situation? He's at a restaurant. He sees a photo of somebody on the wall. How would it need to work? That person would need to be dead. So the person was thought dead. Why is that person thought dead? Because he has to be surprised to see it. He'd be surprised that the person he thought was dead, but it turns out they're not dead. So that's the kind of, you just take an element of real life or something that happens and what if it, like Nick was talking about, and that's another way that I build stories. Nice. I like it. I like it. Mrs. Dwayne Johnson, what what do you got for me? So the reason I gave that look was that it was very funny to to read this. Oh, you here are ways you can do things because stories just ambush me all the time from all of these angles with a genre really with a character. You know, I hate people like you. <laughs> Writing it's easy. I just sit down and just write. No, I didn't say the writing was easy. I said I had a lot of story ideas. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's see. There's Atlantis, and then I guess I can't think of anything else. I guess I'll just write about Atlantis again. <laughs> and then, like, my next book series, I'm like, you know, I'm going to do some fantasy. Like, what about Atlantis, young adult, dystopian? It's, uh, yeah, it's the thing is, I start with these, and then I get into the situation that Nick actually shared earlier this week a post about, which is you write your characters into tight situations so that they can show their intelligence, except <laughs> those their escape is then written by you. 
a dumbass. <laughs> like, crap. <laughs> I posted that for the rest of the world. It's certainly not something. Oh, I experienced, absolutely, of but, course not. You know, I, I thought that you, somebody might be able to relate to that. So I'm just here for. Well, now you know it was me. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, I feel that." <laughs> All right, good times. There's a lot of tips in that article. She had a little acronym GMC. That's something maybe to look into. So yeah, ideals come from where they come from. You can try to do what you can to outline them, and I think you'll figure it out if you're listening to this show. I think you can make it happen. So, we're on to our third story, and darn it, we're going to do this story finally. It's like the third week in a row I've added this thing in, and we haven't done it. So, this comes to us from Kobo Writing Life, and it is titled, How Not to Write About Fictional Doctors. Now, before we go into this, I want to have a little caveat, okay? If you go to the comments of this story... There are people telling this doctor that she's wrong, including another doctor. So take it for what it's worth. This is her opinion about how to not write about fictional doctors. Essentially, if you write these things about doctors, you're doing it wrong. And this comes to us from a professional. And her name is uh, Karina Elise, which I think is her pen name. But she's a full-time medical doctor and an indie romance author. So... Let's go through these. How many of these do you guys see? I don't know if you read books with medical stuff or maybe you're a Grey's Anatomy person or ER. I don't know. But they say there are, she says there are uh, in fictionalized hospitals, there are no foreign born doctors ever. Apparently in the US, one of every four doctors was born in another country. So she says the next overhead page better be for Dr. Agarwal. Agarwal. Ag- Ag- Agarwal. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, my. <laughs> if, if you're listening to this and your name is Agarwal, my apologies. Agarwal. Agarwal. I don't know. Some of these are funny. Did you guys read through this list? What do you guys think about these? Are there any of these tropes that you see all the time that you think they should put to bed after reading this list? So Number five is for everything. Like, I'm a professional artist. And you just, you never see them do any of that stuff Mm. at all. And so unless you're writing Outlander, that doesn't really make sense. And even then, you actually do see her doing some of that stuff. But. Yeah, that's true. You know, my father was a doctor and I used to watch TV shows and stuff with him and just listen to him cackle the whole time whenever there was anything medical that came up. To me, it's, I always think about the difference between clip and magazine, Right. It's, a, it's almost always a magazine, right? A clip is right. a specific thing to load a revolver, but everything else is that you put bullets in is a magazine pretty much. And if I'm writing military fiction, I'm damn sure going to call it a magazine because I know if I call it a clip, that's right away a, a slew of one and two star reviews. Mm-hmm. But if I'm writing a romance novel where there's one scene where there's a gun, if I call it a magazine, readers might not know what it is. If I call it a clip, they'll definitely know what it is. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance between... There's a balance between accuracy and good storytelling. Indeed. Uh, no, like yeah. specifically with the clip magazine thing, I've heard from, you know, the guys who have been in the, you know, military and stuff and they're yelling at each other. They might just Hey, throw me a clip or whatever, because the word has now become synonymous. Another example is like silencer, you know, it's not a silencer. It's a suppressor, right? All the nerds that are going to give you a two-star review are going to say it's a suppressor. And you talk to any military dude who's used one and they're going to be like, yeah, we just call it a silencer. 
Like it, we, yes. we know it doesn't silence. It became the thing. Yeah. became the thing. And so it's like the word ain't being in the dictionary. Like in kindergarten, my teacher was like, it's not a real word. And then by fifth grade, it was a real word because it showed up in the dictionary. So the language is this moving, morphing thing. So Jim's right. You got to make sure you get the, you get accurate as possible. But I almost want to be like, I'd rather just in dialogue, call it a clip. And then, you know, he shoved the mag into the bottom of whatever the thing so that the reader knows, oh, okay. That was just, you know, that was the character who, who called it that, not the author. So it's tricky. I don't know. It's tricky. And I think writing doctors can be the same way. Somebody told me this about the military. And I was like, how does it, cause I'm not in the military. I never have been at least publicly that I can talk about, but foreign no, legion I, is looking for you. I'd have to kill you all. Somebody was like, look, you can pretty much write whatever you want and you can get away with it as long as you explain it well. And I don't, I'm not saying I'm not a doctor either and never played one on TV, but I, I bet it's probably the same thing. You could probably write something. And as long as it's not like just false information and just not factual, you could probably get away with it if it's explained well. You know, I go to Grey's Anatomy where they have the most ridiculous scenarios, like the guy that has to get the active bomb out of the person, whatever the thing you write, you know, and it's okay. That's so ridiculous. But if you do it well enough and you set up the situation well enough so that it is plausible enough, it will be entertaining fiction. We're not writing a doctor's manual on how to be a doctor. We're writing fiction. It's just tricky. And I I don't know that there's an easy way to say how to do it well. Just do it well. And I think you can get away with it. Actually, I have a weird set of insight into this because I've been doing a series of interviews specifically to help authors write different professions. Mm. And first of all, shameless plug, if you are listening to this and you have an interesting job or you know someone who has an interesting job, tell them to get in contact with me. I'm Mm -hmm. doing tons of interviews. I'm a fiction author. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd say number two is the most important here. And that's probably the one that you can take away for any other profession is you spend a little bit of time before you start writing the story on the ecosystem that's around them in their job. So who are the other people they're going to interact with? Whose duties are what? Like if they're a farmer in rural England during the Tudor era, for instance, what were they farming? What animals were around? Stuff like that. Um, What were the other main professions? Because that will give you a whole bunch of other story ideas that you can use. Like it will give you stuff to feed into the brainstorming Mm. and then we'll make it a lot more realistic. There's this sort of sense like you don't share a whole bunch of the research you do, but there's this sense that readers can get when you know what you're talking about versus not if you know what the rest of the iceberg is shaped like. Yeah. Anybody who's spent any time at a hospital knows the doctors don't really do anything. So it's It's all, they just Google everything. It's all nurses. It's all nurses. The nurses, all nurses. Yeah, they do have the doctor makes rounds. Yeah. I'm surprised there's not an entry on here called do not piss off the nurses. Seriously. You'll regret your entire life. Spent a lot of time with sick family in the hospital and they're the only people who accomplish anything. Good times. Good times. Yeah. All that stuff sounds good. Nick's right on the money about the, the suppressor nerds. Silencer nerds are the worst. All right. Really, people who have them, nah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. So <laughs> no point for me to get into that. All right. We are going to move on to the last story is number four. Okay. Now, this is a little bit of craft. Okay. So I'm going to need you guys to make your all accomplished authors who've written a crap load of words. Probably, you guys probably all have a million words published, don't you? Yeah, I think oh, so. Yeah. We're, I think we're so. all about there. Right. Yeah, right. for sure. Okay. That's a lot. That's millions of words have been written on this podcast by this podcast. So 
new authors always hear show don't tell. All right, show don't tell, show don't tell, show don't tell. All right, they get a ram down their throat, and sometimes they don't understand the nuances of the advice and the reason for it. So I would like to go around to you guys and kind of each of you explain to me what you mean by it and then good and bad examples of each. So that should just take a couple of minutes. Let's see. Jim's got the supervillain Dr. Claw steeple <laughs> finger vibe going and I'm with it. So uh, what you got for me, Jim? Mwahaha. So I think the difference between showing and telling aside from the definition is showing, I feel like respects the reader's intelligence and draws the reader in. Whereas telling worries that the reader isn't going to get it, you know, and I, I thought of an example. So this is telling Sally came into my office and she sat down. She looked nervous. That's telling. I just told you how Sally feels. And here's another example. Sally walked into my office and she sat down. She wouldn't meet my eyes. And when she lifted her hand to raise her coffee, it jittered a little bit. So I pretty much told you that she's nervous. Oh, but- I thought you were on meth. <laughs> well, she could be. We don't Instructions have- unclear. <laughs> we don't have any context. But the point is, instead of just telling the reader what I want them to know, I've given the reader clues and let them solve it. And that makes the reader feel smart. And that makes the reader like your book more because we like things that make us feel smart. True that. Mr. Thacker. Damn, I don't, I don't, can't follow that. That was perfect. Uh, yeah, but uh, don't follow it. Like draft and try to go in a different lane. One of the tricks is dialogue. I've heard people, uh, this is their opinion. I've heard them say that dialogue is always showing. It's certainly not the case, but it is true that I think it's a little more showy than just telling somebody something. So in Jim's example, if Sally, I don't mm. know who has meth, but if she sat down and said, I'm nervous, that would be better than having her sit down and have the omniscient narrator say she's nervous, but it wouldn't be nearly as good as Jim's example of actual showing. The reason this is important is um, I just got a private chat. I just want to make sure that the we, we all they call her Skinny Sally. Um, anyway, 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 moving on, moving on. Um, there's so many jokes on this show that no one ever will understand. It's so beautiful. It's the best thing. You guys are my buddies. I've got a couple of novels on my Kindle that are submissions for Conundrum Publishing, and their stories are fantastic. The writing is actually good. There's just a lot of telling and it comes out in ways, even in dialogue where they'll have the the character show up at a museum and then, you know, the uh, curator will start, they've been talking about something and it goes dot. And then they're, they just dump a bunch of information about the thing that the author needs the reader to know. And it's the curator telling the main character. And that's bad because most of the time, honestly, I think 90% of the time, the cool fact or the cool information that you, the author, thinks the reader should know, we we don't need to know. You don't need to tell us. You just don't need to put it in the book at all. There are 10% of the time there's an exception where you need the, that to be a red herring or a MacGuffin or a fact that is something to do with the plot itself. But the rest of the time, if it truly is a cool fact, I'm going to go research it on the side on my own. You know, Say what you will. I think Dan Brown does this really well. He gives you enough information so that you're like, wow, this actually this sounds like it's a real thing. Let me go... I remember the golden ratio you mentioned in the Da Vinci Code. And I was like, that sounds cool. Is that a real thing? And sure enough, it is. And I started going off at a rabbit hole. So I think there's – yeah, do what Jim said. <laughs> Very good. Pippa, bring us home. So what I'd recommend is that people read both – 
Pattern Recognition or Neuromancer by William Gibson, and then also Kushiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey, because they do the showing and telling very differently, and they both use the voice of the book in order to emphasize that. So, for instance, in Kushiel's Dart, Carey does a ton of what would be considered telling, except what it actually is, it's showing about other things while it's telling about the first thing. So it's like an interesting sub-story, but it's also fleshing out the world, which is absolutely necessary because she's trying to detect these sort of hidden currents and motivations. Mm. And it's showing you how the world works there. And so there's these, you know, backstory bits about characters that are important to that character because she's training to be a spy. She would be learning those facts about people and, and then Something Gibson is much more stripped down and like very simple, quick language, stuff like that. That's what I like. Hmm. Stuff hmm. I can understand. I like Lee Child being like, he punched him in the nose. And I actually have a question about what you said, Nick, which is I've been reading a whole bunch of thrillers and it may just be that I'm reading older thrillers, but it seems like one of the things that was common in the really popular ones was the sort of info dump about hmm. the new technology well, here are the exact specs of the yeah. president's car, and here are the that's Clancyisms. A yeah, Clancyisms. That's a that he's the big proponent. And he did it really extremely well. I would argue as well as you could do as an author. Mm-hmm. But I don't read Clancy for that exact reason. Oh, okay. You know, I'm like, I don't need to know where every fucking button is on the you know panel. Just it, tell me it's a panel. There's a button. He pressed it. I'll go research the. Did damn he press panel. the correct panel? <laughs> you know, but he did <laughs> this in a time. Button. Maybe it is an older thriller thing because I don't see it in in modern thrillers as much, unless it's not done well, which may, makes me think that the author doesn't know they're doing it. But back in Clancy's day, like they didn't have Google, and this stuff was basically. Remember, the military sat him down and was like, "How do you know what you know? So who's telling you?" So he did a really good job of doing the research and getting really deep in, in a time that you couldn't really do that. So that is also That's what true. makes his style. And I would never say that he's a bad author or a bad writer for that, but I, I don't read it because it, yeah, it's too much. I just want the plot. I just want, does he punch him? Does he press the button or not? Does he punch him in the face? Does he get shot in the neck? <laughs> That's, these are the important things, guys. He better not get shot in the neck or they owe you money since you are the copywriter. I, it's of the neck, neck shot TM. You got to, yeah, it's Nick. Decker thing. You get royalties for that, my friend. <laughs> All right, guys, it looks like we're coming up to a good time. Do you guys got anything you want to add before we bail out of here? Apparently not. Okay. <laughs> I just uh, I love the outro even more than the intro. So I'm gonna <laughs> Nick has decided we have nothing more to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end. Bang the gavel. All right. For all of us at Arthur News Weekly, I'm R.A. McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody.